with you guys. Um, I'm excited tonight to uh, spend some more time in uh, this idea of apologetics, uh, which is the word for uh, a verbal defense. And so our goal here tonight is to kind of do step two of the apologetic breakdown. Um, this is going to be very different, like we talked about before. It's going to be different than what you usually see when you go to an apologetics course. I'm not going to list out all the different evidences and, and things like that that you can then plug in for any situation. I'm not going to give you a big stack of books that you need to go read. That wouldn't be bad. I've got plenty of them. I'll loan them out. Uh, but the idea here is that you understand how to view the world rightly from a biblical perspective, and then that makes the actual discussion about your faith that much easier. And by easier, I don't mean simple, uh, you don't have to really work at it, because this is something you can spend a lot of time on. What I mean by that is that it is something that you can grasp, you can get your head around, and then you can really get your head around it, and it affects how you see everything. So tonight, what we're going to do, we're going to start off, we're going to review a little bit, we'll talk about our homework, for those of you that did it, um, and then uh, we will get into what's called a worldview analysis. Um, and what this is going to be is we're going to look at how the world views the world, okay? Um, so this is going to be kind of a, wait a second, do we really need to spend time on this? And the answer is absolutely. Because if we don't know where a person's coming from and their base view of the world, we can't then show them God's view of the world because we're not, we're communicating past each other, okay? Um, so we'll talk about that in the as we go. So let's review really quickly. Um, and, I'll, and as a preview, next week we're going to talk about logic. Don't let that scare you off, okay? It's actually pretty easy. Um, it's just we're going to be naming it. We're going to be labeling it and figuring out where we see it used incorrectly. And you'll see most of the time logic's used incorrectly on commercials. Um, so you'll be able to be like, hey, that's a logical fallacy. That's a this and that's a that. And I'll even teach you some Latin. So if not, just come back for the Latin, okay? Um, and in three weeks, there's a wedding in between. Um, three weeks, uh, we'll be talking about the entire apologetics. And that week, what we'll do is I will do uh, sort of a role play for you where I'll say, okay, here's what an atheist would say. Here's what you say in response. Here's what a Mormon would say. Here's what you say in response. Here's what a, and then we would do some back and forth. I would show you how to do that. Um, and then you can decide whether this is for you um, and whether I've made enough of a case to convict you that this is the biblical model for what we should do when we talk about God. So that's our plan. So last week, uh, two weeks ago, we spent some time in the book of Romans. Uh, we talked about Romans 1, where Paul says that everybody knows there is a God. He says that every single one of the people on this earth knows there's a God. So right off the bat, somebody walks in and says, I'm an atheist. You go, no, you're not. They might not like that. Probably not the best way to go. But understand that when you are talking to a person about God, they know there's a God. They know there is a God because the Bible says so. The Bible says every single person knows enough about God to know that he's there. What they're doing is they're holding down the knowledge of God. And this is that idea of taking a ball and putting it under the water and having to hold it down. They work really hard at that. They really try to hold that, that ball down so it doesn't just explode up in front of them. And it's a touch point where we can witness to people and say, listen, you know there's a God. You have decided to not believe in that God because, and then we can help diagnose the issue there. All right. So Romans 1 talks about that, 18 through 32. You can listen to that if you want to hear uh, that. Then we went forward into 1 Peter, 
chapter 3 to kind of the hallmark verse. That is uh, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. In your hearts, honor Christ as Lord, uh, the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense, apologia, to anyone who asks you for the reason of the hope that is in you, do it with gentleness and respect. And so what we talked about, what we talked about, this is the idea of, first and foremost, we're not giving up ground. We're going to start with Jesus is Lord. The Bible is true. That is our presupposition. And then we're going to argue from that with anybody who will come. And this is not the arguing like you see and you will see soon in the presidential debates, okay, or the primary debates. This is actual, you want to talk to the person. Because what does it say? Gentleness and respect. There ain't none of that in the presidential debates. Can I get an amen on that? Right? Okay, so this is, uh, I use the word winsome, the idea that we want to approach this person and say, you know, really, they are living in a dream world, and we're trying to help them wake up. So our goal is to take them to the throne and then let God work on their heart. Okay? So that's really our goal. That's what we're doing with apologetics. In order to do that, we have to start with what their view of the world is. So the passage that I'm going to be touching on today, if you want to turn there, is Psalm 22, and I'll be to that in a little bit. But first, we've got to do a little review. So um, I apologize. I didn't make enough note packets. Um, I thought 30 would be enough. It wasn't, so I'll make sure I have, like, maybe I'll do 50 next time. Maybe this place will get packed out. Um, so I'll have enough for you next time. If you want a copy of that, uh, or if you just don't want to take notes, you want to just hold it up, someone wants one, however you want to work, I can email these to you. I'll even send you more stuff than you know what to do with uh, about this apologetic. So, um, so let's talk about some of the, uh, the homework. So the reading I gave you was an um, a allegory um, about a Christian named what? Anybody remember his name? It was Denny... Anybody? Defenseless Denny. There he is, right there. Okay? Now, Defenseless Denny was a Christian. He was a brand new Christian. It was kind of nice that all their names lined up with their problem, or, the, or not problem, but how they viewed the world. Okay? So, Defenseless Denny knows that the Bible is true, is a Christian, but he wants to witness to his two neighbors. And his two neighbors are the no-gods, Cindy Certain, and, come on, Cindy Certain and her husband, Dave Dowder. Very Portland Dave. Okay? So, he wants to talk to them. So, what does he do? He goes and finds his friend. His friend's name is Freddy the Fact Checker. Okay? Fact Finder. Now, Freddy shows up and he introduces some facts into the equation. And I circled them in my book so you guys can hear them. Freddy says, here's the reasons why God exists. Number one, everybody thinks there's a God of some sort. It's pretty good. Everybody believes it, right? And I know some of you parents, or at least some of us kids have heard, now if your friends all jumped off a bridge, what's next? Would you, right? Okay. Peer pressure. It's a peer pressure argument. It's not a very good argument, but it's one that maybe somebody might use. Number two, the laws of cause and effect show that there must be a divine cause for the world. Okay. This is a very famous one. We kind of got the low end and we kind of got the high end, right? Cause and effect argument, the prime mover argument, Thomas Aquinas also called the Kalam argument. There's a bunch of different ways this has been phrased. Very popular argument. Seems like a slam dunk, right? Which I don't think we'll be seeing any of this afternoon when we play basketball. So, okay, maybe Matt. All right. The order of, and the third one is the order of the universe points to a God who designed it. That's the intelligent design argument. These are the arguments that we would probably trot out if we were to talk to a non-Christian today. But when what happens next 
is what happens a lot of times, right? Certain Cindy, who does most of the talking, comes in and says, well, that's not a good argument because of this. Or I don't see it that way because of that. Or this evidence doesn't make sense to me, so I'm not going to believe. And so at the end of their little interaction, Freddy Factfinder and defenseless Denny, okay, they are a failure. Because ultimately, Cindy Certain, Certain Cindy, goes, I don't agree with your interpretation of the facts. Because really, that's what it is, right? When we're talking to someone about apologetics, about the Bible, the facts don't change. It's not like over here you got the atheist, well, here's my facts. And we got our Christians, here's my facts. It's the same facts, right? We look at the human body and they go, oh, that must have come from a pile of sludge that eventually evolved into an ape which became us, right? Out of chaos becomes order. We look at it and go, ain't no way I came from that. God must have made us in his image. And we also have the Bible to back us up. It's not just like we came up with that. But you've got this, it's the same facts. It's the same person. It's the same DNA, right? The difference is, is that their interpretation is wrong. So what's happened here in this first interaction is that Freddy Factfinder and Defenseless Denny and Certain Cindy and Doubting David whatever, okay, are two ships passing in the night. The other day, I was, I, my brother-in-law was watching a debate between an atheist and a Christian, and they both were bringing out their facts. Now, I think the Christian had a lot more facts, talking about the resurrection of Jesus, and he was throwing all these facts, and they just kind of went right by each other. Because ultimately, it's not about the facts. It's about how you view those facts. And so that's why tonight, when we look at this, you're going to be able to see clearly how this applies. Well, that wasn't the end of the interaction, right? There were still two more Christians to come. The second Christian was Benny the Bible Banger. All right, so there's Benny the Bible Banger. Now, Benny taught what's called fideism or fideism, okay, um, which means the faith is all that matters. Okay, semper fi means always faithful, right? It's the same basic word. It's this idea that faith is what matters. And so he says, you just got to believe, and all I need to do is just show them the Bible, and that's it. Now, is he wrong? No, the Bible's true, right? But to talk to a person, again, it's that ship's passing in the night. Because she says, well, we don't even know if Jesus is real. Well, we don't even know if this. And, and they have all sorts of things floating around, and they're not willing to listen. Because the heart of the issue is where their heart is. And where their heart is, is it's built on a foundation that is not going to be touched by talking about the facts. Okay? So then finally we get Chris Christian. Now, I have to be honest with you. I had to go back and reread uh, the story because um, I didn't notice the first time that Chris was actually a girl. But this looks kind of like a girl, sort of. So there you go. Chris Christian comes in, and she is a presuppositional apologist. And she goes right to the heart of the issue. And she says, listen, you know there's a God. The Bible says there is a God. We're going to start with God's Word. We're not going to give up our stance on God's Word to try to argue with you on your worldview. We're going to take our worldview and show you why our worldview works and yours is rubbish. It does not work. And that's ultimately what we do. And that's what we talked about last time. Okay? If I come into a discussion with my boy Dan here and I come into him and I say, hey, you know what, I believe in God, you don't believe in God, let's go. And you go, well, I don't believe in God. And I go, okay, well, let's put God aside and let's talk. You've just won, right? Because ultimately, we have just gotten to the point where, what? I'm starting from his worldview. And you like getting on a train, or do people ride trains? I don't know. If people get on a train to go to Chicago, you're going to end up in Chicago, right? 
how did I get to Chicago? I got on this train, right? No wonder when we talk to a non-Christian and we start it off by, let's just argue, let's just talk about whether there's a God or not. We've gone onto their territory. There's no neutral ground. And ultimately, I love what C.S. Lewis said. We talked about this before. He says, God and the gods. The important thing now is that in our world, it's man deciding which evidence to believe in versus bowing the knee to God. And that's the problem. When we approach a non-believer and we say, here's a bunch of evidence. Now, what do you think? Who's the person looking at the evidence? It's the non-believer trying to judge the evidence. They are still doing what makes them a sinner and not wanting to follow God. They want to be the judge. They want to be autonomous. They want to be the boss. And so what ends up happening is we just it's a big cycle. We're just feeding right into what they already believe. So that's our foundation. That's what we spent some time on last time. And I know I'm talking fast, but this is review. That's how we teach you to do it. Okay? So, and again, if you guys have any questions, I was going to get some 3x5 cards, but this today has been a very hectic day. I'll put some 3x5 cards out next Sunday. And if you have questions, I'll answer them. I'll do my best to answer them. I'll probably just find people on the Internet who are a lot smarter than me and ask them, and they'll tell me. And um, I will give you guys some answers to some questions you might have about some of the stuff we're doing. Okay? And if we have time at the end, we'll do the same. So, we're going to start talking about worldview now. So, this uh, concept of worldview is, starts with the idea that there is no neutrality. We kind of touched on that already. Come on, let's go. There we go. So, first thing, oh man, that's hard to see. There you go. So, a worldview is ultimately a network of presuppositions. Okay? Back up for a second. Neutrality. This idea of neutrality, again, we have to understand there is no neutral ground. Okay? We must start from our worldview and argue and discuss and debate with them at their worldview from ours. We don't give up our ground. We start with our ground. And we'll talk about how that's not circular reasoning next week because that's a, that's a charge people say. Well, if you believe the Bible and then you argue that the Bible's true, you, aren't you just arguing what you believe in? And the answer is yes. It's called an axiom, which means it's a bedrock thing. It doesn't go away. We'll talk about what that looks like in a minute. So no neutral ground. Okay? Talked about that. The only way to, to uh, discuss is we have to be good listeners. So the first thing we do is we listen. We listen for cues on how they view the world. And that's incredibly important because you could have this great presentation. I mean, you can just, I kind of envision it this way, right? I expect the person coming to my door, knock, 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 little badge. You're going, Mormons, yes. I got my Mormon notes out and I'm ready to go. Guy comes in, it turns out he's not a Mormon. He's a Buddhist. He forgot to take his name tag off after he works at Target. And he wants to talk to you about Buddha. And you're arguing with him about Mormonism. Well, you know, Mormons, you Mormons believe, I'm not a Mormon. Okay, but you Mormons, you believe, I mean, that's, that's what we do, right? We have this kind of prepackaged issue with, here's how you talk about it. We've got to listen first. And we've got to be willing to get into relationship with non-believers. I was listening to a pastor talking this week, and he was talking about how we um, are not to be associating with people who are sexually immoral if they are brothers or sisters in the faith. I was like, okay, well, that doesn't seem too controversial. He goes, but if they're sexually immoral and they're not in the church, hang out with them and show them Jesus. And I was like, okay, I can get behind that. The point being, we should have lots of non-Christian friends. We should have lots of non-Christians that don't view themselves as projects, but are our friends that we are pouring into trying to show them the Lord. And so you've got to be willing to listen to them and talk to them. Because evangelism 
and apologetics, they're the same thing. They should have one name. Apollo-evangelism, right? Okay? That's what we should call it. It's just defend the faith so you can grow the faith. All right. So sound defense comes from a worldview analysis. So a worldview is a network of presuppositions which are not tested by natural science and in terms of which all experience is related and interpreted. Okay. What does that mean? Well, that's what I'm going to spend some time talking about. Okay? Nice little side note. There's the little... I'm not sure why I zoomed in on that, but there you go. So we talked about neutrality. It's impossible. Okay? Everything must come from a worldview analysis. I got a little ahead of myself. I got excited in the intro, so I've already covered this. But in your notes, you can find a spot. If you miss a spot, I'll help you fill it in later. Okay? Or if I miss a spot, because you guys are doing great. I mean, it's a blast. Okay? So right back to it. So more about a worldview. If we want to kind of flesh this out a little bit, it's a, uh, a network of presuppositions. So it starts with what I assume about the world. Okay? Um, these things are not things that I have come to conclusions. It's where I start and then find conclusions from. So it's my bedrock. It's my foundation. And they're based on three things. Reality. And we call that metaphysics in the philosophical realm. All right? Metaphysics. We'll talk about what that means here in a minute. Knowing or epistemology. Okay? How do we know what we know? And then lastly, conduct. Ethics. Okay? These words that are, are very important. All of human interaction is dealing with these three things. Okay? Now, really, in our world, there's a very big metaphysic bias, which says we don't need to be thinking about the big picture things. Right? Don't worry about whether there's a God, the nature of reality, what happens after you die. Leave that alone. But instead, let's talk about what we know and then what's right or wrong. Well, all three of these work together to make a worldview. Everybody has a view with these three things in it, even when they say, well, it's not important. That's an actual philosophical view. I remember there was a tweet that I saw a few years ago, and it was a scientist and a Christian talking. The scientist says, we don't need philosophy. Philosophy's dead. And the Christian goes, why? And the scientist goes, well, because science is a... And he goes, and now you're doing philosophy. The point being is that philosophy is how we view everything. It's how we understand the world. Philosophy is something also that people just aren't taught anymore. Because I think if you're taught good philosophy, you end up becoming a Christian. And some of the biggest names in philosophy in the world right now are born-again believers. And they are phenomenal. And, and we're seeing that throughout, throughout the world, okay? Which is why the philosophy uh, departments in colleges are getting smaller and smaller. is because the, uh, the philosophy teachers are becoming Christians and they don't want Christians on college campuses. All right? If you haven't noticed that already, that's the way our colleges are going. Okay. Moving along. So the first um, worldview assumptions, uh, human experience, everything, everything is understood through how we view the world. Okay, I'm going to harp on this over and over again. It's interdependent. It's self-contained. It's a truth system. And so as we talk about what it is to be a believer, we don't just pick and choose certain parts to, to deal with in the non-believer. Okay? We don't just say, okay, you know what, your ethics are wrong. Let's talk about ethics for a little bit and then push you on your way. Because that doesn't deal with the heart of the issue. All three of these are together. We argue from the entirety of the Christian worldview. We don't argue from one little portion of it. Because again, if we're Christian in this part, what are we in the other? Not Christian. Atheist. We're in the enemy's territory. So we argue from our worldview first and foremost. Okay? 
And then finally, there are no brute facts. Remember, everything is interpretive. There are no brute facts. That's how you can see two different news stories, right? Go on Fox News. Hey, it's this way. Go on CNN or any other one. It's that way, right? And it's the same facts. 30,000 emails, right? Okay, what's the deal with the 30,000 emails with Hillary Clinton? Okay, there's two different interpretations. Are the facts any different? Well, some people would say, well, we don't know all the facts, but if we had all the facts, we're still going to have one interpretation, and we're going to have another interpretation. That's the key here. So, we get into presuppositions for the worldview. First one, presupposition is an elementary assumption. It's a base assumption, okay? It is the starting place from where everything else grows from. It's a foundation. And like with most foundations, people don't spend a whole lot of time thinking about them unless they're broken, right? Okay, your foundation's sinking on your house, now you're thinking about it. Otherwise, you know what, you don't spend a whole lot of time talking or thinking or even looking at your foundation, unless you've got those really annoying ants going in and out of your foundation. Other than that, there's, we don't think about it. And it's the same thing for this world. It's the same thing for us. What is our foundation based on? What are we building it on? Where is our foundation set? And so as we analyze this, we want to make sure that we see, and this is the place where there's the least negotiation possible, because your entire world is built on this thing. And that's why a lot of times when a believer has, a non-believer has this kind of crisis, their foundation is being eroded by the God of the universe so that they can build the foundation on a real foundation, there's a lot of just angst and things like that. And that's where we as believers need to come alongside them and say, it's going to be okay. You're going to make it through this. Because the foundation you're going to is solid. You didn't have a foundation before. You just thought you did. And we'll see how that works all together um, in a little bit. Presuppositions, wide-ranging, foundational perspective. It's the starting point. Okay, Everything is interpreted and evaluated. And then, again, they have the greatest authority. This is a person's um, authority place or their, their place they go to. It's their home. It's the thing they will not move on. And what you'll see is, is that the, um, the non-Christian worldview, the one that's the most popular, uh, which is kind of a materialism worldview we see in our culture today, they believe in materialism, but yet they kind of, depending on the situation, pick between three or four different worldviews depending on the situation. Um, and even that, we can go, wow, that's pretty hypocritical. That's pretty illogical because these two are contradictory. But for today, I'm going to be an existentialist. No, today I'm going to be a, um, I'm going to be a utilitarian. Nope, I'm going to go back to existential. I mean, we're going to see this back and forth view of the world, and and really, it's very uh, cluttered. And we can help declutter that by pointing them to God's word. Okay. So some more on this idea of elementary. I'll go through this pretty fast. All experiences related. Everybody has a worldview, okay? They just don't spend a lot of time thinking about it. Everybody has a, a base assumptions about the world and what that looks like, okay? And it's a system. And then everything is interpreted, okay? Everything is interpreted. Now, this is, let's not get too postmodern on this and say, well, since everything's interpreted, there is no truth. No, there is truth. Remember, our starting place, God is the truth. Jesus said he's the truth. That's our starting place. They're over here trying to figure out some sort of truth, and it changes depending on their moods. We have solid that we can take them to. And that's ultimately what we're going to try to do is we try to expose their problems with their worldview. Okay. So I know I'm going fast, but this is just the introductory part. Okay. So here are some of the presuppositions that people make. 
Um, and these are ones that maybe you don't spend a lot of time thinking about. Because if you think about it, we wake up in the morning, we don't kind of lay in bed and go, okay, i got to wait for my system to boot up. Okay, i got to run that program. Okay, let's run the gravity program. Okay, yep. Yep, there's gravity. Cool. Okay, am I still, I'm still me. Yep, um, okay. I'm still me. I'm still a male. Okay. I walk over here and I go, oh, I still am a bipedal male. I walk on two feet. All right. Hey, I'll go over there. There's gravity still working in this room. Amazing. Okay, let's go over here and see if water's still wet. It is wet. We don't do that, right? We make base assumptions about the day. We don't go through all of these thoughts. But yet, these are the thoughts that we go through without even kind of knowing about them, right? We don't reboot every single day. We don't get out of bed and go, okay, you know, whatever. We, we just assume them, okay? So the first one, I love this one. Um, the reality of the existing world. Am I sure I'm not just a mind in a vat? This is called the BIV, not the BFG, the BIV, okay? Uh, BIV, this is the brain in a vat, okay? And there was all of these philosophers that spent a lot of time saying, how do I know I'm not an imaginary, how, how do I know that I'm not imagining all of this as a brain sitting on a shelf somewhere. Okay, so that always kind of hits with a thud when I talk to my students about it. So I say, how do I know I'm not in the Matrix? Well, I know because I don't know Kung Fu. But other than that, you know, how do we know we're not imagining this, right? Okay, I mean, I, I think I know an answer to that because if I was imagining this, I'd be in a lot better shape, right? I'd be a lot better looking, okay? I'd be taller, right? There's a lot of things that we would say, but... You know, the idea of how do I know this is real? People don't sit and think about that unless they're in a philosophy course or maybe at church on Sunday night. How do we know that this is the really real? Okay, more on this. How do I know that the past even happened? How do I know that what happened earlier today was not just beamed into my mind and we just started to exist a few minutes ago? All right, uh, don't get hung up on that, okay? We, we can trust our memory. But the thing about it is, is that when you look at it from an atheistic worldview, there's no reason to trust our memory. There's no reason to think that tomorrow will be like yesterday. Okay, there's, there's all sorts of problems with it. So, we look at that. The next one, how does my mind and my material body interact? Okay, given the chemical processes of a tangible body, how do I know what's really real? And, and you know, when you start talking about particle physicists and you know, quantum mechanics, and there's all these debates about whether stuff is really solid or really not solid, and we don't spend a lot of time worrying about that, right? We don't go, man, I sure hope this concrete is still solid, okay? We don't do that, but yet those are things that we take for granted, or granite sometimes if it's not concrete, right? Okay, all right, that one was bad. I don't want that, yeah. The continuing personal identity, how do I know that I'm me, Right? want to blow someone's mind and they say something about the universe and they're a materialist and go, well, prove to me that you're the same, the same person that was born from your mom X number of years ago. Well, of course I am. Show me evidence. Who saw it? What do you mean? Well, who saw that you actually stayed you and you didn't become someone else? And, you know, it's like, well, I, I can't prove that. I can't prove that I'm the same young man that was born to Carol Roberts on October 14th in the 70s. Okay. All right, 76, I'm turning 40 this year. There you go. Okay, so, you know, that, that type of thing. How do I, because no one can see my whole life and say, oh, he's still the same person. Yep, yep, oh, we assume that. And by assuming that, we have a worldview behind that. And these kind of worldview things, these answers to these questions, every single one of them lines up with Christianity. And when we start digging into how Christianity is the only worldview that supports 
all of these base assumptions, you're going to see that, that, what are they standing on over there? They're standing on nothing. And occasionally they'll come over on ours and stand on our foundation and try to argue. Um, but like the homework that I have for you guys tonight, it's like a little kid who sits on their dad's lap and slaps him in the face. The only reason the little kid's up there is because dad's holding them, right? That's what we do. These non-Christians want to use God's logic, his, his, his map, his worldview to then say there is no God. How offensive to the God of the universe that that's the way you do it. Last one, cause and effect. How do I know that cause and effect is going to work? May I expect that my physical actions will impact the material world around me? Right? How do I know that if I do this thing that I've done a hundred times, it's going to have the same effect? Why is that consistent? Why is it not something different? In the atheist worldview, if it's all chance and chaos and whatever produces order, there is no guarantee that tomorrow gravity is going to work. There's no guarantee that, and you can just kind of fill in the blanks on that. There's so many times they make assumptions that this is the way it's always been, it's always going to be this way. And those are the kind of things that they have no answer for. How can you go from chaos to order to advanced intelligence order? You can't do that. It doesn't work. Okay? So, here we go. Now, all these issues, every single one of these is not tested, um, not seen, heard, or felt, but they are foundational. Okay? Again, most people are not going to spend time thinking about these things. Most of you aren't going to spend time thinking about your foundations unless you are interacting with non-Christians and you can see how their foundations are built on something else. Okay? So let's talk about our first one. Um, so here are the three basic ones we're going to talk about. Nature of reality, metaphysics. The nature of knowledge, epistemology. And what is right and what is wrong. And I love the right and wrong one because our world now, especially because I teach government, our world is now no longer based on an actual ethical standard. That there is an absolute right and an absolute wrong. You look at our Constitution, it's we the people, and they call out, and even the Declaration of Independence calls out to a creator. And there's a foundation for right and wrong. We believe in America now, and this is taught in all of our law schools, okay, and what's called legal positivism, which means the judges decide based on what the people like is true. Oh, that's scary. You see the problem there? Whenever there's a problem, take it to Hitler and you win your argument. Hitler was in charge of his government. Hitler, his government, and the people agreed with him. Now, not all of them, but a majority did. They decided they wanted to go down this path. According to legal positivism, that was right for them. That's the mindset that our judges and our lawyers are being taught in law schools. Now, not all of them. There are some Christian ones out there, but a vast majority are taught legal positivism. Why is it right? It's because the people all agree on it. Wow. See some problems there? If the people all agree that Jim Crow is the way to go, that's the white segregation in the South, then guess what? Martin Luther King wasn't doing the right thing because he was trying to stand up for something that everybody else disagreed with. And there's a lot of, you can go down a lot of bunny trails with that kind of an idea. So ethics is one that is a really difficult one for a non-believer who says, it's all relative, baby. It's impossible for it to all be relative. Because if it's all relative, then there's nothing to stand on. There, it, it, it's contradictory. And we'll talk about why that's a problem later. All right. So let's deal with metaphysics. Okay. Metaphysics comes from the word Latin. Metaphysica, 
sounds the same because it is the same, right? We just took the Latin word and turned it into English letters. There you go. It means meta, which means after or beyond, and then physica, physics, nature. It means beyond nature. What is out there beyond what we can see around us, okay? So you can see right there a non-Christian who does not believe in a God, does not believe in an afterlife, doesn't want to believe in anything spiritual, is going to have a really hard time with metaphysics. It's not something that is brought up in college classrooms. We don't see people discussing this. Greg Bonson says, The study of the ultimate nature of reality, the origin, structure, and nature of what is real. So here are some of the questions that they asked. And there's a bunch of them. What does it mean to exist? Okay. What's the nature of man? Is he free? What's the nature of, God, of, of good? What is good? Is, is, is man inherently good? Is he inherently bad? Is man an animal? Is he something different? I mean, right there, we've hit on a lot of different things, right? If man's basically an animal, then the animals have the same rights as us. I show my students this clip, um, and there's actually a movie coming out about it. I know that's hard to believe that there's a movie about something crazy. But there was this uh, chimpanzee whose owners sued for him to have human rights in Europe for, for the European Union. Okay? Now, he lost, but that was like five years ago. And now there's a movie, and I can't remember the name of it off the top of my head, but it's about monkeys, and it's about a guy who has for years been promoting, trying to promote that chimpanzees and certain forms of monkeys have the same rights as humans, and they need to be treated as such. And he's serious about it. And his, his popularity and his funding and the amount of people that agree with him keeps going up. Why is that? Because his metaphysic is, we're just animals, right? How about our prison system? Our prison system is based upon, in many ways now, the view that is very much not in keeping with Christianity is that it is man is inherently good. He just needs to do some re-education. We just need to do a few little tweaks and, you know, talk through their issues and then move them right back out and they'll be fine. Now, that does work in certain instances, and I'm not meaning to belittle anybody who works in uh, our penal system. I have several of my students who do. But the problem is, is that man, left to his own devices, is what? Fallen and evil. And our world will not handle that, because their metaphysics, whether they like it or not, is man is inherently good. Okay? Does God exist? Obviously a big one. Unfortunately, in our school systems, God's not usually allowed on campus. Um, and, and actually, what's interesting about it is we see this separation of church and state, which not in the Constitution, came from a letter by Thomas Jefferson to the Dansbury Baptist Church, and so on. The Supreme Court codified it and made it part of the law, right? However, it's not accurate, because there is a religion taught in our schools, and it is atheism. Flat out taught everywhere. Because any time you teach 12 years of school and there's no mention of God, what are you teaching to the students? You're teaching there is no God. Or if there's a God, it's not worth our time. We're just going to kind of shove them off to the side. Okay, so that is being taught overtly. And even sometimes, you know, straight up and down. I was in community college and I had a college professor who um, told us that our, our paper we had to write for our midterm was why there is no God. And he said, you don't write that, I'm going to flunk you. And guess what? I'm the only person teaching this class. You want to graduate here? Good luck. And that was a real crisis of faith for me. My freshman year, it's like my second class ever in college, and I'm going, i got to do what? 
and you know, maybe a different time I'll show you guys what, what ended up happening to that. So the goal here is to understand the world, the universe as a whole. Is there change? That's another one. Can we actually change anything? Or is it kind of all predetermined? That's a huge one. We're all just chemical reactions to what's going on around us, so therefore I can't help who I am, right? Well, if that's the case, then there's no way to punish anybody for anything because if it's just chemical reactions and everything's determined by how my brain works, you know, it's, there's no punishment. There's no wrong. There's no anything. It's a crazy, crazy world when we think about it that way. Uh, what is history? Is development possible? Are there laws? Are there things that govern reality? And so on. So the goal here is to, like I said, understand uh, the universe as a whole. So this is what metaphysics deals with. Now, um, most people are not really unaware of metaphysics because, like I said, they don't realize that they have a view of things outside of the physical. Because I would say a majority of Americans, okay, majority of Americans believe in base scientism or scientific, whatever I can see, feel, touch, that's all that matters. Everything else doesn't matter. They don't spend time thinking about souls or thinking about the nature of mankind, fallen or not fallen. They just don't think about it. It's just left aside. But when you expose a non-believer to the fact that they do have a metaphysic, this is an incredible touch point. And this is kind of a little side note I want to make here, is that when we talk to a non-believer, remember we talked about this last time, we don't go to their territory to witness to them. We find places where our two territories touch, or more likely, they've come into our territory to argue for theirs, and we say, do you realize what you're arguing here? Do you realize what you're saying here? When a person says, you know, I don't think da 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 about humans, about change, about punishment, about right and wrong, you have a moment there to say, you know what? You have a view of things outside the physical world. Let's talk about where that view comes from. Where does that come from? Does that come from your experience? Does that come from what you've been taught? What is that? And so you have an opportunity to then show them that they have a metaphysic and then show them how their metaphysic does not match up to their worldview and how their worldview is built on sand. Okay? So that's kind of a little side note there. All right, now we're going to deal with epistemology. Epistemology. And actually, I want to go back one second about metaphysics. This is too good of a quote. Pastor Dave, like, circled it on my document, so I want to read it to you. When asked if something can miraculously pop into being from nothing, the non-Christian vigorously responds in the negative. No miracles. None whatsoever. Out of the question. But when asked if something can pop out of nothing given seven, several billion years, the non-Christian confidently responds, of course it can. But, as noted, the non-Christian overlooks the fact that if one zero equals zero, okay, math here, that's kind of scary, then a billion can equal only a zero, right? The non-Christian attempts to base rationality upon irrationality because in order to start from zero, what's zero multiplied by anything? Zero, right? Don't have to be an accountant to know that, right? Zero multiplied by anything. If you have nothing, it never becomes something. So if you have zero and you have 50 trillion years, you still have zero. It doesn't just automatically boom up. You know what? Enough time. But isn't that interesting that they have a view that miracles, which are God doing certain things, impossible. No scientific proof. Okay, show me how nothing can become something. 
I love it. This guy named uh, Lawrence Krauss wrote a book called uh, The Universe from Nothing. And in it, he spends a majority of his time explaining how nothing is something. So, Lawrence, you have a problem. You have changed the word nothing to mean something. So where did that something come from? Well, it's always been. Well, the problem is, is you don't believe that. You believe in the Big Bang where there was nothing and then there's something. Okay? Sounds a lot like, in the beginning, God said. All right? So it's, it's interesting how they do that. All right. There's my little side note. Epistemology. Epistemology comes from two Greek words changed into the Latin. Epistem, which is knowledge. Okay? And then logos. We're familiar with that. That means word or discourse. This is how do we know what we know? How do we know what we know? What is our basis for knowledge? Like, well, we just know it. Yes, but why? What is our source of knowledge? Where do we get that from? What's the justification? What's the origin? How should we go about getting it? There's a lot of debate on this because the non-Christian doesn't want there to be anything outside of what they can see, touch, feel. Uh, David Hume once said that there's two ways to know truth. One is to use your five senses. The other one is if it's true by definition. The problem with that is, did either of those meet their own criteria? If I look it up, the word truth in the dictionary, it's not going to say, see David Hume, okay? I'm not going to take out the word truth and I'm going to lick it. I'm going to say truth, right? I'm not going to do that because your senses can't prove a statement to be true in all cases, at all times. And it's not true by definition. So even then, they're trying to find ways around the idea that truth comes, there's ways of knowledge that come from things other than our senses. So here are some of the questions that we ask in epistemology. What is the nature of truth and objectivity? Can we be objective or is everything subjective? What is the nature of belief and knowledge? What's their relationship? How do they do? Can we know something yet not believe it? Can we believe something yet not know it? How does that interact? What are the standards for justified belief? How do we know what we know? Is there there a certain amount that we have to be sure of before we can actually know it or not? I mean, there's a lot of us that we know certain things work. We have no clue how they work. Turn the key. It goes on. Yay. I don't have to call my father-in-law to come and figure it out. That's the kind of the way we do things. There's a lot of knowledge, but we have no idea what it does, but we know that it does that. How do we know things? Are we allowed to know things? What kind of evidence is acceptable? And then how do we use science? Can we use science? Because, again, you know, science is kind of held out in our culture as science works. We have to do what science says or science says this. But science, again, is just one way to glean knowledge. There's lots of other ways to glean knowledge. And science is one that does seem to work. But because of the fact I have a smartphone in my pocket doesn't mean that everything that a scientist says is true. It doesn't mean that everything that scientists postulate is true. Just because we are good in one part of science doesn't mean that everything science does is great. And we'll talk about that a little bit more as we move on, especially in the last week. So how do we know things? How do we know things about God? How do we know things about how God uh, shows himself to us? So we have three different ways to know. The first two are very familiar if you've ever done any kind of seminary or any kind of Bible college, Bible classes. Uh, We have what's called general revelation. And this is what we saw last week um, with Romans. Romans 1 is huge on this. This is the idea that God reveals himself in nature. 
All the facts of the universe are only properly understood. Can only be, you can only come to terms with those ideas if you first start with God. If you first make sense of God. And again, the unbeliever knows this. Remember, Romans 1 says everybody knows this stuff. This is the general revelation that every single one of us gets. Okay? Whether you're a monk living in Tibet, or you are a Christian living in Texas, or you're an atheist living in England, it doesn't matter where you live. It's all the same evidence. And it says in Romans 1 that nature is screaming out that there's a God. And you can know this God. Whether you're living in a cave in outer Mongolia and have never heard of Jesus, God of the universe is there. And He is evident. And there are countless stories of missionaries who've gone to, to people groups that have never heard the word Jesus. They've never heard that name, the name above names. And they show up and they say, I'd like to talk to you about Jesus. And they go, well, it's about time someone explained this to us because we knew that there was something wrong with man and we knew that somebody had to die for that and we just didn't know the name. Thank you that you brought that to us. And there's missionary stories like crazy about that. And that's the way it works. This man knows this. And this general revelation is very, very, very key to that. And the universe is personal. God made the universe this way. Um, one of the things our science teachers like to talk about is what's called the Goldilocks zone. Anybody ever heard of this when it comes to uh, where, our, where our Earth is situated in the universe? Not too hot, not too cold, it's just right. Okay. Our Earth is set up in this perfect little window so that we can see out into the rest of the universe. I mean, we can see farther than many other planets, even in our own solar system, based on how close we are to the sun, but far enough away that it's not too bright. And it's just all these amazing things about how our universe is set up. And I'm hoping Pastor Dave brings out some of that when we do Genesis 1. I'm sure he will. Him and I, we've, we've been going back and forth with some science stuff and geeking out on that. Um, so, you know, we are, God is reaching out to us and wants us to know. So when we compare that to how the non-Christian sees it, this is how they see it. And these are some famous quotes. The universe is indifferent. Who created it? Why are we here on this puny mud heap spinning in infinite space? I have not the slightest idea, and I'm convinced that no one has the least idea. Andre Morose. Why shouldn't things be largely absurd, futile, and transitory? They are so, we are so, and they and we go very well together. George Santayana. He's the guy that said history repeats itself. All existing things are born for no reason, continue through weakness, and die by accident. It is meaningless that we are born, and it is meaningless that we, are di we die. It's kind of ironic he makes a meaningless statement about, a meaningful statement about meaninglessness. Kind of self-defeating there. That was Sartre. And then uh, Voltaire, life is a bad joke. Now, kind of jokes on Voltaire. Voltaire said that Christianity would die out in his lifetime. Voltaire died, and you know what they turned his house into? A church. I just thought that was kind of funny. God has a sense of humor which we already knew because of the duck-billed platypus, right? Okay, um, all is relative. August Comte, I'm not sure if I say his name right. And then finally, Samuel Beckett. How am I, an atemporal being, imprisoned in time and space to escape from my imprisonment when I know that outside space and time lies nothing, that I, in the ultimate depths of my reality, am nothing also? This is the end point of where it goes when you don't base your truth on God's Word. When you do sit back and you think about these questions, if it's all chance and we're just a bunch of evolved animals, there is nothing waiting for me. There's nothing. 
the Ro- ancient Romans used to write on their um, on their tombstones because they were very big into this kind of meaninglessness. They wrote, "I am nothing, or I was nothing, I am nothing, I care not." This idea that I started from nothing, I'm going to nothing, and right now I'm dead, so I don't even care. And that's what they write on the tombstone. It's kind of like YOLO. I one, you know, live for the now, and then you're done, right? And that's it. So that's the mindset that you would have. And when we see this, do you see how much this is, these people are hurting? You see how much that they are, I mean, they're self-medicating with stuff in this world, or, or, or you know, alcohol, or drugs, or sex, or whatever it is, the endless pursuit of happiness, whatever that is. And that's what our world's going after, and we have the truth. How dare we not share it? So that's what general revelation, everybody sees it, but they just don't care to see it rightly. So we can come in and show them that. The next one is called special revelation. This is where God reveals himself to a specific group of people, and he's done this over and over again. It's called your Bible. This is what your Bible is. This is special revelation. God became a man, came down, lived a life. People wrote about it beforehand, wrote about it afterhand, and that's what we have as our special revelation. Okay, That's the part that, oh yeah, we didn't know his name was Jesus, but we knew we needed a redeemer. We didn't know there was a God named Yahweh, but we knew there was a God. This is the part where we as Christians take the special revelation and say, let me explain this to you. You don't quite have it all there. And we see this through the book of Acts multiple times where people have a little bit of the gospel, they don't have the whole thing, and the Christians come in and they explain to them the whole thing, and then they usually baptize them. And then the Holy Spirit gets poured out. Okay, so it's a pretty awesome thing to see when that whole picture comes together. So that's special revelation. And then the last one is what we call incarnational revelation. Incarnation means in the flesh. Okay, this is talking about Jesus. Jesus' revelation, what Jesus did, how he lived, what he said, what he did on that cross. All of that is another form of knowing truth. Now, again, a non-Christian is going to say, oh, that's hogwash. But the problem is, is that we can show them where their worldview does not match up with theirs, but matches up with ours. And that's where we can really hit it home, that you're living in our worldview. You're living on our, our, our view in order to try to say that there is no God. You're sitting on God's lap, slapping him in the face and saying, you don't exist. Right? It doesn't work, because God's going to win. Right? So, again, Jesus came and literally was on the earth, another way for us to know truth. So, in summary of this section, okay, there are three modes to know information from God. Directly, I'm sorry, indirectly through nature. That's what every single person gets. That's why it's general. Everybody gets it. doesn't matter where you live. Then you've got special, which is directly through God's word. Him actually speaking to you through the Bible and so on. And then personally in Christ. All right. So this is our, our picture of what it means to do this. Now, a non-Christian trying to live out their life ultimately is not going to be able to have reason. They're not going to be able to understand history. They're not going to be able to predict the future. Everything is based upon faulty logic, faulty understanding of reason. And so as a Christian, we have the upper ground. We have ground to stand on. And as we move through this apologetic, you're going to see that more and more clearly. All right. So there's the man on the moon. And last one, ethics. Ethics is a branch of philosophy dealing with the ought to statement. A person ought to do this. 
a person ought to do that. I was having an online discussion with a past student of mine, and, uh, you know, a non-Christian, we were talking, and I, I said this phrase that I'd heard before, how, do, how does a person who believes in relativism say, I ought not to eat my neighbors? Right? What's their rationale? Well, they wouldn't like it. But maybe they're tasty, and I think that they would be good. It would make me happy. And since I'm going after what I think makes me happy, how dare you say that what I want isn't okay if it involves them? Right? How, how do we account for that? Now, in the Bible, the Bible frowns on that quite a bit. Okay? Just a lot. Okay? So, the, you know, the idea that, well, well, you know, we can't do that. That's not done in a civilized society. Says who? Why? Well, it's not the way we do things. Well, why not? What's your rationale? Well, the majority of people say it's, well, the majority of people jump off a bridge, would you? You, know, you just go right back to the same thing. If it's group think for explaining why we do and don't do things, then you can now make anything okay to do. You can make everything not okay to do. I mean, you can, you can see how this is a problem. And I, I just don't know how people do it. I don't know how people can teach ethics in our society right now because you can't tell anybody anything's wrong. You can't tell them what they're doing is wrong. You know, we just want it to go a different direction. No, that's wrong, okay? So the questions we deal with here, uh, the, the questions that um, will pop up here momentarily, things like what is the nature of good and evil? Man, I tell you what, that word evil, that is not a popular word right now. Okay? Even when we have a terrorist attack and people are getting killed left and right, bombs going off, whatever, Evil, they very, it's gotten less and less popular to say. But what an incredible touch point. If you're talking to a non-Christian and they say, well, God, God of the universe wouldn't do evil. Well, what's evil? Well, evil is little kids dying. Well, why is that wrong? We're just animals. And take them to the, we know that there is evil. We know that there is awfulness. We know that there's something wrong with the world. And what a great place to then take them right into the gospel and say, this is not the world that, that it's supposed to be. This is not, you know, your, your view of evil means there's a good and there is a good. I'd like to introduce you to him. His name is Jesus. I mean, what a powerful way to be able to take that to them. And we, we'll probably do a little bit of that in, in three weeks. Another question to ask, what are the standards of ethical evaluation? As soon as someone makes any sort of judgment call on anything, they are making an ethical evaluation. They are assuming there's a right and a wrong. And as soon as they do that, they're leaving their worldview and walking into the Christian worldview. Because every single worldview is based upon either it's what I want or it's based upon a book that is sort of based on what I want or my interpretation. There's a lot of stuff there, and every single one of them has now left their worldview. Associations of guilt, personal peace, and then how do we produce or attain moral character? What does it mean to be moral? For the non-Christian, there's no such thing as uh, ethics. There's no basis for it. Um, some of their attempts to try to do this, I uh, like what George Bernard Shaw said. He said, the golden rule is that there are no golden rules. The problem with that is, is you're, ma- you're saying there are no rules, but then there is a rule. That there are no rules. So you see how as soon as it contradicts itself, it's not true. Because you can't have contradictory statements about logic. We'll see this next week. I'll be able to prove to you guys that you can, someone will say something like that, and you can prove to them that they actually believe the exact opposite. Because as soon as you contradict yourself, you, anything goes. I can say up is down, left is right. You, words have no meaning if they contradict themselves. Okay? So where do we get 
where do we get logic from? G.M. Bailey says these are our morals. I'm sorry, where do we get values from? We get values tell us something about the nature and purpose of reality, or they are subjective and therefore meaningless. Either they come from a firm foundation, or they're just in, right? The last one from Richard Churchill. If our rationality and morality do not come from God, they come from chance, from permutations of some basic stuff, or from the working of mindless forces. In either case, they have no validity. If what our view of right and wrong is simply based on we're the highest evolved thing, then it doesn't, there is no right and wrong. Okay? And we're hammering this over and over again. See, I think ethics is the easiest one to see because that's where we deal with people most often. You know, well, how dare you say that this is a sin? Well, the Bible says it. Well, how dare you believe that, you know, archaic book? Why? Because it's out of date. Well, who says? What does out of date mean? Because you're, you're assuming there's something in date and something out of date. What does that mean? And then now you're, you're talking ethics, but you just said there was no right and wrong. How, what? Okay? And you see another contradiction, which means logically invalid. Okay, so Dostoevsky writes, if God does not exist, then everything is permitted. Now, I need to say one little caveat here, because this is where a lot of times atheists will go, whoa, wait a second. Some of us atheists are more moral than you Christians. Yes, I'm not saying that an atheist is not a moral person or does not line up with many of the morals in the Bible. What I'm saying is they cannot account for why those are good. Right? Uh, Cornelius Van Til said one time, atheists can count, they just can't account for counting. Right? They can't make sense of why counting makes sense. An atheist can live a moral life and you can say, why? Well, I don't know. It's just what I do. It's just what you decide. That, that, there, there's no rationale there. So I'm not saying, and, and we're not teaching that an atheist is not able to do math or do science or be moral. What we're saying is they can't give a rational reason for why morality is an okay thing to do. And so um, one guy came up with this little kind of creedal statement for an atheist, and this should just break your heart. There is no God. There's no objective truth. Everything's subjective, right? There's no grounds for reason. There's no absolute morals. There's no ultimate value, no meaning, and no eternal hope. What a sad place to be in. What a sad place to be in. And you know, I've heard people say over and over again, we live in the People's Republic of Oregon. Okay? I mean, there are more percentage-wise Christians in mainland China than there are in the I-5 corridor. Percentage-wise. We live in a very unchurched, unbiblically-based culture. And it's only going to get worse because the rest of the nation, Europe's already there. The rest of our nation is going that way too. And this is what they're living. They're going this route because most of the time they haven't even spent any time thinking about it. They just have said, oh, well, my teachers never talked about God. None of our movies talk about God. None of my television shows. I never read about him in the newspaper except when it's talking about bad stuff that some Christian did. So there's probably no God. They've never thought about it. And we have it. Don't hide it under a bushel. Okay? All right. So, we're going to talk the last little bit here, and this will go pretty quick, is worldviews, okay? Worldviews. Now, I told you I was going to go to Psalm 22, but I skipped that spot, so if you're holding your spot, you can let it go. Um, worldviews. There's three types of worldviews. The very first one we're going to deal with is called monism. All is one, okay? This is an idea that the entire world is one. It's, it's all spiritual. Okay? The physical, what we think is 
this and all the other things that we are touching is just not here. Okay? This is a worldview that's not super popular, especially here in the West. This is based on, uh, very, very much based on Hindu philosophy. Okay? Hindus believe uh, in a form of pantheism, okay? that God is in everything. And they believe that the physical is what we call maya. Right? Maya means illusion. Everything is one. But the kind of, kind of interesting problem with that is that if you continue to progress your way up in Hinduism, you enter into nirvana, which is to become one with the universe. But if this physical is an illusion, then I could already be in nirvana but not know that I was in nirvana. And that just spins the Hindu's head around in circles because if everything's an illusion, I'm just as much as in nirvana now as I will be later on after I've become a cow and did a good job as a cow and then moved up into the top because Hindus believe cows are the step below being part of Brahman, the, the highest god. And anyway, that's your Hindu lesson for the day. So this idea that all is one is a concept that, again, like I said, is not very popular here in the West. We do see it a little bit in some of the New Age philosophy, um, the kind of the idea that you know, you need to understand that it's all just in your head, right? If you're dealing with something, something that's a problem, it's just because you haven't, you know, cleansed enough of your chi or whatever it is to get that out of the way. So that's monism, all right? The next one is called dualism. Not with an E, okay? This isn't shooting people, all right? Still mourning Alexander Hamilton getting shot, all right? Dualism means that there's two different things, okay? There's mind and there's physical or there's spirit and there's body, however you want to, to do it. This is very popular, especially with Plato. Okay? Plato's allegory of the cave, if you ever were taught that, which actually is a lot like, back to it again, the Matrix. If you've seen the movie The Matrix, it's the allegory of the cave, but with kung fu fighting and machine guns and Keanu. Right? So dualism is the concept that there is spirit and there is body. And there's two kinds of dualism. The first one is called idealism. And the second one is called Stoicism. Idealism has kind of fallen out of favor. And I'll show you why in just here in a second. Stoicism, you'll occasionally catch a person, especially if they're a, like a 1960s kind of, you know, child of the 60s, depending on, because not everybody in the 60s were, were hippies and flower children and things like that. But you see a lot of the Stoicism kind of coming out of that because that was a very popular philosophy then. Idealism is the physical world is known by ideas and types. Okay, in Plato's cave analogy, he says that we don't actually see the real world. We just see shadows of the real world. The real world's beyond us. It's the spirit. And only through breaking ourselves out of the physical can we understand the spirit. That's the closest. I'm going to explain it right now because there's a lot more to it than that. But it's this idea of what makes something good or better than something else is because there's a perfect version of it up there. So in the spirit world, there's perfect duckness, Right? And when we see ducks and we go, that duck's really nice. That one's not so nice. That one's closer to the perfect duck that's in the spirit realm. That's Plato's view. And you can see why this one's like, oh, that's fun. Oh, are we done yet? All right. That, that's kind of the mindset. And where do we get this? Plato says, we just know. All right. Okay, that's kind of weird. Or we were born with it. Again, not explaining anything. How does that explain anything? It doesn't. But that was Plato's view, and it was popular for quite a while. Stoicism is basically go with the flow, man. Just chill, okay? This is the problem that we all have is conflict, okay? It's that we have desires that are unmet, right? 
you're in the car and you want to get somewhere and there's traffic on 205 because there's always traffic on 205. And I'm stuck in traffic and I'm just going, oh, right? I have stress. Why? Because my desire is to get somewhere faster. If I would just change my desire to match up my life circumstances, everything would be great. Because I'd be like, eh, no big deal. I can be late. Who cares? Right? And that's the mindset of the stoicist. Um, we get this idea when we, we see uh, the stoic, someone's being very stoic, that they're like almost no emotion. Well, that's wrong, actually. The stoics did not see it that way. They just said, turn your emotions to whatever is happening to you and just learn to deal, right? That's why they were so popular as soldiers, because the soldiers would be like, oh, okay, we have to run that hill again? Okay, might as well, right? Oh, we got to go into battle, only 20 of us against 300? Okay, you know, that was the mindset, because the Stoics was, well, I'm not going to make it any better by stressing about it, I'm just going to go with the flow, man, just chill, all right? So you can see people every once in a while that kind of have that philosophy. Now, this is the one that is the most common, materialism. Okay. This one says matter is all that exists. It's also called atomism. Okay. The main concept here, I know it's hard to see, matter is all there is. It's also called atomism. Now, this was a philosophy that came out a long time ago, before we ever knew there were things called atoms. Okay. Science just borrowed that phrase, that word, atom, from the ancient Greeks. Ancient Greeks were like, well, what if it was, an, and depending on which ancient Greek you saw, some of them said everything is made up of water. Another one said everything's made up of fire. Another one said everything's made up of, and he had a bunch of random rocks or something, right? And so that's how the Greeks viewed it. We now know that we are made up of atoms, and so science and materialism have wed themselves to be one and the same. So there's a couple different kinds of materialism, and like I said, this is the most common. Um, the first kind involves no freedom. Okay, um, this means that you don't have any say over what you do. You're just a creature of your environment. Okay, and there's two different types of it. The first one's called determinism. All right, this is we are made of stuff, and we can't change. There's no free will. I can't change anything. I was born this way, and my brain thinks a certain way. So what's the point? Determinism. Psychological data. Really, and you know, th this determinism, um, there's two different types. The first one is called behaviorism. And this is humans are just conditioned. We're like little white rats, okay? You know, if all we could do is we could just crack open your head, tweak a few little things in there, and you would be a totally different person. Because guess what? That's all you are. You are just a brain inside of a body, and you just go in there and tweak a few little things, and there you go. Makes perfect sense. That's behaviorism. We can fix behavior by a few tweaks in the brain. Because you don't have any freedom, ultimately. You are a creature of your genes, your DNA. The second one, which has kind of fallen out of favor, at least in culture, still popular on college campuses, is Marxism. Historically, or culturally, or economically, these are the things that determine how you see the world. Okay? So you see how it's not just Marxism like we think of communism or something like that. It's, it's saying there's outside forces outside of you that make it so you have no freedom. All right? So this first one, this determinism, where materialism says no freedom, you have no say. One, it's because of inside. Oh, I see the world this way because of my genes. The other one is I can kind of see the world, but because of all the cultural influences, or the economic influence or historical influences, I see the world in this way. 
There's no way for me to get out of it. And so, you see, this is a very interesting one because you'll talk to people and they'll jump right into this. Well, you know, you know, us, us, you know, Caucasian North Americans, we view the world this way. And it's totally different than how they view it over here. And that's Marxism. That's saying that our culture dictates and we are creatures of our culture and we can't break out of it. Or they would say, well, you come from a long family of people who have a lower IQ or, a, you know, or this or what, however you want to break it down. That's how they view the world. There's nothing outside of it except for my matter, and my matter is already predetermined for what's to come. The big problem here is, how can you say something's right or wrong then? If my genes determine who I am, and I feel like eating my neighbor, you can't tell me it's wrong. My genes have decided it for me. Right? Or my culture. I mean, you can't judge any culture wrong. There's, there's cultures where, you know, they, they do awful things to young girls. Well, that's their culture. That's their historical. You, who are we to go in there and judge them? Right? If we're going to view it in this worldview. Because this worldview says there's no freedom. We can't judge anybody for what they're doing. All right. So the second group, this is the free will group. And there are three of them here. They're all based on what's called hedonism. Okay? Now, traditionally, when we think of hedonism, it's the pursuit of pleasure. All right? But hedonism, in its mindset, is saying pursuing one thing at the expense of everything else. Right? And traditionally, it's just been pleasure. A lot of times, it's sexual pleasure or something like that. But the hedonist, if we go back to the original meaning of the word, means people who sought one pleasure over another. And so what this is, is this is saying, I'm going to choose this over that. And this is what's most important. So there's three different types. The first one is called an egoist, not an egotist. Okay, an egoist. This means me. I need to look out for me. This is the mindset of Ayn Rand. She wrote uh, Fountainhead, Atlas Shrugged, Anthem. Uh, very popular, especially in the conservative realm, because she is as conservative as the day is long, but she's a stout, stout atheist. And she wrote a book called Anthem, which is her version of a dystopian future, way before Hunger Games, way before all those other ones. And she said that the main focus of that is the individual learning to see that I am more important than anybody else. And that was the, the, the forbidden word in the book. And at the end of the book, the main character, spoiler alert, says, I am. And that was the end of the book. Because they, she, the, the main character, I think it was she actually, said, I have realized I. Uh, this idea of me, I'm what matters most. So that's what a lot of people will do. Now, why would anyone want to be good if it's all about me? Well, anybody ever heard of the movie Pay It Forward or that concept? That is, I'm going to be nice to you because someday I'm going to need someone to be nice to me, so I'll just be nice to you. There's no such thing as altruism because ultimately I'm looking out for me in the future. And so that's what an egoist believes. Next one, utilitarian. This is very popular, especially considering one of the Democrat uh, candidates for presidency really pushed this idea. That was Bernie Sanders. Okay? Uh, this idea of the best interests of the most people. And many times the utilitarian, started with John Stuart Mill, says the only way we can meet all the people's needs, almost all the people's needs, at all the time, is to let the government meet those needs. And so we see socialism, okay, the idea of socialism. Not full-on communism, that's got a slightly different bent to it than utilitarian, but it's more of a socialism kind of idea. So that's the next one. Then the third one, this one is very popular. Um, it's one that will come up on a regular basis. And most people don't even realize they're doing it. And this is existentialism. That's a very intimidating word. It's hard to spell right. Okay? 
existentialism. The idea of ex- existentialism says we are so free that nothing governs what I am and what I can be. Okay? I come into existence and I shape my existence. So if I decide that I am a flower, then I am a flower. If I decide that I am an 85-year-old, you know, stay-at-home mom whose kids have graduated and gone off, then that's what I am. If I decide I'm a five-year-old, that's what I am, right? So existentialism is I decide what I am based on how I feel and what I want to be, okay? No God, no state, nothing. I determine what I am. And so even in these five that we've looked at, you can see how people will go back and forth. Oh, how dare you say that they that what they're doing is a sin? They can't help it. It's their genes. Oh, over here. Well, their genes say that they're this, but they self-determine that they're that, so therefore, let them do that. In the span of two sentences, I have gone from, you have no freedom, how dare you tell them not to be true to themselves, to, you know what? They're not going to be true to themselves because they feel that there's something different. Okay? Big gamut here. And it's all based on the materialistic philosophy that matter is all there is. There's nothing outside of it. How do we make sense of those concepts? You ultimately choose what you are, who you are, and what you feel. Does that make sense? Okay. So materialism is the one that is very, very popular. Now, here's what I have seen happen. When you talk to someone who's a materialist, and you show them the inconsistency, many times they'll just go, well, then what's the point? What's the point of thinking of any of this? What does it matter? And that's actually a fourth worldview. So they've not only jumped back and forth on their materialism, they've jumped to another worldview where they say, it really doesn't matter what I think. It's just a matter of getting by. And that's the last one we're going to look at. And that is pragmatism and skepticism. Okay? Philosophers have in the past said, you guys are arguing about all this stuff. Who cares? What does it matter? What does it matter the nature of God? I gotta live right. I gotta make. I gotta make ends meet. I gotta make. I gotta figure out what I'm doing tomorrow. So what's the point? And so these philosophers came up with the concept of pragmatism. Do what works. If it's not working, it's wrong. Well, if it's not working, go find something that works. And this is the concept. If it works for you, do it. If it doesn't work for you, try something else. This works great, by the way in the Disneyland of the world called America, where people can change what they want to do over and over again. doesn't work so well when you go to other places where most jobs are the job that your dad did. Okay? Or your, your view of what you can do in the world is very limited based on your geography or where you live in the world. Whereas here in America, you know, we got a lot of choices. Very many choices. Okay? Nature of reality is no big deal. Just figure out what works and do it. Skepticism. We don't know anything for certain, so why even try? Everything is deficient, so the best we can do is probably, so who cares? This is kind of the the place that most Americans will end up being. I don't think anybody can really know anything about anything at all. Well, you just said something about something, so therefore, you just disproved what you said, but that's what you're trying to live by. You're trying to say, I just don't know anything, so what's the point? And so skepticism ends up being self-defeating. And they flip back and forth and back and forth. So, those are the basics of your worldview. I'm going to touch on one last thing, and then we're done. So I know we're 
we're pushing up on the, the end of time, on the end of time, <laughs> hopefully not, the end of our time um, here, and uh, there's three things I want to kind of preview for what we're doing next week and then the, in two weeks after that. This is how do we critique a worldview, all right? The, the, the way we approach apologetics is we start from our firm foundation. I start with the Bible, and then... Since I believe the Bible and I'm not giving up that ground, I then enter into the non-believer's worldview solely for the purpose of critiquing it and showing how it does not work based on a couple criteria, all right? And so those three criteria I'm going to introduce to you today, we'll talk a little bit about next week, and then in three weeks, we'll really do these over and over and over again. I've kind of already done them a little bit as we've gone through these different worldviews. So... We've got our worldview guy. There's our cool animation. What's he thinking? All right. So when we critique a worldview, we're looking for three things. And every single worldview, except for Christianity, has one of these three things in it that make it so it doesn't work. Okay? First one is arbitrariness. This is believing something without proof. Okay? This is just making a statement without any logical reason for it. Majority of worldviews do this. They'll say, well, the world's this way. Well, where's your evidence? Well, that's what you believe. That's arbitrary. Okay? If you don't demand evidence or reason or rationality, logic, to explain something, everything's fair game. I believe that the clouds are pink. I believe that they are orange. Where's your evidence? I don't have any. Where's your evidence? I don't have any. We're both right. Yay, we can all live together. Okay, you can't have arbitrary if you're going to have a logical, meaningful discussion. Okay? You can't do it. Debate is impossible. Many, uh, let me read this to you. Many materialists hold to materialism without any reason. Okay? They automatically say what I see, taste, hear, touch is automatically true and nothing else is true. Well, again, there's no reason to believe that. How did you prove that? Well, someone told me. Did you see, taste, touch, all of that? Or No, I just heard, I thought it. Okay, well, that doesn't work. So it's arbitrary. It's not based on. Okay? Second one, inconsistency. This one is also huge. And what it is saying is they'll say one thing here and they'll say the exact opposite over here. And the number one law of logic is if it does not stay consistent, it is not true. You cannot have something be A and non-A at the same time in the same way because then there's no way to have a logical thought. Like 2 plus 2 equals 4, and it equals 5, and it equals 7. How's that going to work for you? Okay, how's that going to work for you, Mr. Accountant? Right? Bank teller. Well, I believe my 2 and 2 equals actually 7. You know, no, that's not going to work. Okay, inconsistency. You have to be consistent. And then last one is preconditions of intelligibility. And what this one simply means is can the worldview make sense of intelligence? Can it make sense of the world? Okay? If we start over here with random chance things bumping into each other, can we get from that to where we are now? With human beings doing things that are amazing. The intelligence, I mean, the, our DNA is full of more information than the entire Encyclopedia Britannica times five, right? Our cells have more information than most computers have ever had in the history of the world. That, that's the kind of stuff that we see. Can we make sense of that? Do we have all the things 
to make sense of how we see the world. So that's where we're going with that. Next week we'll hit logic. And the week, two weeks after that, we'll hit the main point. We'll kind of do it. So logic will take uh, a little bit of time. We'll start kind of going over some of the how to do this. And then in three weeks, like I said, we'll just be hammering it. I got some nice little flyers for you to take that show you how to talk to each worldview and have some cool kind of little pointers and things like that on there. So last thing, you have one more homework. Well, at least one more for this week. Um, and it's on the back back there. It's a one page and then a half a page on the back. It's called the prolegomena of apologetics. Prolegomena means like a critical introduction. And this is written by Greg Bonson. He's one of the guys that I've studied at length. Uh, he's a Vantillian presuppositional apologist, which means he's been teaching this stuff here. Uh, he passed away back in 1993. He wrote this article to a student who was in college and was being kind of confronted with all this unreasonable malarkey. And so he wrote this to them, and it's really laying out the entirety of our apologetic, and it's in a page and a half. So just read that. Um, if you have any questions about it, please find me on Sunday morning. If you want to jot them down um, on a note card and give them to me or give them to Matt or Pastor Dave or my wife, some one of the people that's interacting with me, and I'll, I'll look at those and answer them for you. We'll kind of preview that a little bit, and then that will be where we go on the final uh, Sunday night. Okay, do you have any questions about what I've covered? I know I feel like I was just like going super fast. Any, any questions? Okay, feel free to come and ask me about this stuff, and if I don't have the answers, like I said, I, I know people online who are a lot smarter than me, uh, and so on. Can I just pray and dismiss them? Is that good? Okay. Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for the beautiful weather, Lord. It wasn't too hot. It wasn't too cold. Uh, Lord, thank you for that. Thank you for this uh, building that we can get together in and study your word. Lord, thank you for the computer system and the sound system and the fans, the electricity, the chairs we sit in, every single thing that you put into place so that we could be here at this exact moment. Lord, nothing happens by chance. It is the firm, directed will of you. So I pray, Lord, that you would help us to see that, that that would be what would spill out of us as we interact with our non-Christian friends, and that, Lord, we would take these uh, ideas of worldview and not just let it go in our minds and just kind of sit there, but, Lord, we would use it um, to be able to understand, communicate your truth to those who are hurting in our world, who have no hope, who have no meaning, who have no worth, but they do because they are your child. I pray that you would help us to help them see that, and just start a fire right here in Clackamas and Milwaukee and Oregon City from this church, Lord, in your name. Amen.